Hello, my name is Justin Kluwer, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. But today, it's a monumental episode. We're going to lay down what were the best films of the last ten years. Definitively! Oh, man. Uh, Little Fockers. <laughs> Did that come out in the last ten years? That yeah, was 2010. Holy uh, shit. I can't think of any movies that came out. <laughs> I was going to come up with uh, gag movies, but and I can't, you can't, even... can't think of a single one. <laughs> The whole decade. I was looking through... Uh, 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let me get out my um, Blu-ray off the shelf. Are you counting down the days till the new Michael Bay film comes to Netflix? Uh, it's just not the same on <laughs> yeah. Netflix, is it? No, I guess. I want to be trapped with a Michael Bay Yeah, movie. so you can't leave? You're like, yeah. oh! And you're just just assaulted by those images one you know what another. i did consider pain and gain on my list because yeah. i do love pain and gain as the ultimate example of michael bay like being michael bay in a way that is perfect because i don't think he's in on the joke but the right. script plays up to those i guess like stylistic tics and obsessions that he has that might i think pain and gain is the one where he started to get some cinephile fans oh the vulgar tourism yeah. i think like the transformers movies he was getting that kind oh, of i guess stuff. he had movies on the criterion collection <laughs> that's right that he supposedly strong-armed them into putting out. Oh, good for him. Yeah, he's like, listen, I want my movie Armageddon, The Rock. There's no reason they're not on the Criterion Collection. Well, he's right. So, you know, did you work hard on putting this list together, Will? Was it tough? I actually did not find it that tough. No, really? Because I I took an approach that I also think you took mm-hmm. an approach. Yeah, because I stole approach. it from you. You stole it from me, which yeah. is to try not to think of this in terms of the definitive top mm-hmm. 10 movies of the decade. Because first of all, even trying to do that is stupid. Yeah. Mad Max Fury Road. I don't know. What other films came out in the last 10 years? <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know. The Master. The Master, Inherent Vice. Are there some other uh, Paul Thomas Anderson films I can throw on there? The, you know, the ones that are on oh, every list. Yeah, Resident Evil, uh, The Final Chapter. I've seen that pop up on a bunch of people's lists. But like, I think when people are doing their top 10 of the decade list, they feel this dual priority of doing ones that are their favorites, but are also somehow the best. Mm-hmm. I agree. Because they need to show people that they have good taste or they understand what makes a great movie right and i don't know what's the point of putting a list like that together well i decided to go with the radical approach of of not of not doing i mean i think a lot of the movies on this list are some of the best i agree but but you're using it as a human shield to be like if someone's like why don't you have that on your list you're like wait 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 i just picked the movies that i think are the best Well, because there are definitely there are definitely some movies on my list and perhaps also yours that like Okay, are they better than Mad Max Fury Road? No. Are they better than Inside Lewin Davis? Uh, yeah, I haven't watched Inside Lewin Davis since I saw it in theaters, so it was great. Just using that as an example. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What other Coen Brothers movies came out in that time? Uh, some good ones, some yeah. bad ones. Classic Coens. But we're trying to talk about movies that meant the most to us, mm-hmm. or that we've been thinking a lot about, or that seem to somehow define the decade for us, define what we were interested in this decade, define what seemed to be the trends that were happening this decade. Just, just you yeah, stuff that when we think about this decade and our movie-going experiences, our movie-going life, yeah, the way our our, our, our blah, 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 you know what? Forget it. I'm not even gonna bother. <laughs> you were ramping continuing. up. You were getting to the end there. And no, I was, like... I was I was on a stairway to nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> like the one they built in Springfield. So we're gonna go through these lists, not from the best or the worst to the best, because uh, again, what's the point of doing that? I think that your list is alphabetical. Mine is by year. So, so let's so just do it that way. Let's go. All right, you start. What do you got, Will? So I am going to start with a pretty highbrow choice, mm-hmm. folks. I am going to start with the first of two films by a pitchet pong, Wirasathaku. Ah, uh, two films. Now that's a sign of a real critic that they have two films by the same filmmaker on their list. Well, because uh, what can I tell you? These movies meant a lot to me. This no, decade. I agree with you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would never do it because I'd be like, 
It's uh, only 10 spots. Yeah, you want to give a slot to somebody else, Yeah, somebody else, else. Right? yeah. Because we talked about that. It's also, these are also like recommendation machines. Well, but I also feel like, uh, you know, as, as Peter Bogdanovich said, I don't, and he's No good I, movies have been made since the 50s. <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich, by the way, who I model my life after. <laughs> I mean, you started wearing the ascot and everything. Peter Bogdanovich said that he doesn't have favorite films so much as filmmakers whose company he enjoys. <laughs> oh, okay. And I think A Pitch at Pong is that for me. So I'm starting with Cemetery of Splendor, which mm-hmm. is his 2015 film that is probably the last film that he's going to make in Thailand, where the military junta has made him feel Unwelcome, And it's a rather oblique political parable about this rural hospice where a number of Thai soldiers are in a deep slumber. And when they wake up from this strange affliction, they reveal that they are fighting this war in this alternate reality because this hospice has been built upon an ancient burial site where uh, ancient kings are, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. waging this war. And this is a movie where his whole style, it is slowed down to as slow as it's ever been. I mean, my big complaint, no monsters in this movie, as opposed to the other film on your list. (laughs) But there are monsters if you project them onto the movie. (laughs) Sure, okay. (laughs) Because this is very much a movie about how uh, the past is always present Mm. and everything is permanent, even when nothing is permanent. And so when you look at this space, it's haunted by the ghosts of everything that has come before. And it's also just a great movie if you want to snooze to it. Yeah. If you want to drift in and out. It's a different kind of experience. It's one that you have to uh, come up to uh, or you can drift away from. Fall asleep watching. I mean, I love Cemetery Spawn. We talked about it on the episode that we did. Even though that it is... I would say one of his more difficult films. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it would be the one I would recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably even start with the other one that's on your list, which we'll get to. And in fact, I also, I feel like Cemetery of Splendor is sort of a career summation up Mm. to this point. So to watch it first would also be a disservice to you or the viewer if you haven't experienced the other films leading up to that. And I've got one uh, coming up later that may be (laughs) a more ideal entry point. 13 hours. (laughs) (laughs) By a pitch and pong. That's right. So my number one, uh, not number one. The first one that I'm going to mention is In the Family, which I only saw mm, two, three years ago because I met the filmmaker. Ah, yeah, it's one of those. Patrick Wang, because we showed his film at Bread Factory, which was recently released on Blu-ray after like a year of touring the festival circuit. In the Family, he gave me a Blu-ray of it um, when I met him. And it played almost no film festivals except for the ones that like he went to directly and got them to play. He four-walled the movie when he went around like the country and, and stuff like that. And it's strange because the uh, the Bread Factory, by everyone who has seen it, loves it. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Rosenbaum, of course, calls it one of his favorites of the decade. And In the Family is a movie that got four stars from actually Roger Ebert, like before he passed away. Mm. And it's a film that like got no uh, penetration anywhere, which is hilarious when you hear the plot of it, which is about two men that are in a relationship are taking care of one of those men's biological son. But when the father dies, the other man in the partnership, played by Patrick Wang, the writer-director, the family thinks that he doesn't have a claim to that son, that they've kind of like brought up together, but they're not married. So the courts can't actually recognize it. They're also in the South. So there's like some prejudice there. Mm -hmm. And that's what the movie's about. That sounds like very... I don't know, difficult, mm-hmm. but it's not. And it's a long film. I think that that's what people, that kind of takes them aback. Like, I think it's three hours long, mm-hmm. but you don't feel it at all. And it's just like a very, like, masterful and controlled movie that's like the most suspenseful film you'll ever see because it is literally about, like, a father losing custody of his son. Mm-hmm. Not in a, like, liar, liar sense, mm-hmm. but in, like, a genuine, like, 
there's no villains in this movie. Like, the other family is not evil for like, oh, we don't think the son should stay with you. It's just like, oh my god, it's so frustrating. And it's also so engrossing. Mm. And like, if someone asked me like, oh, what's a good movie you've seen lately? I'm like, oh, this one, In the Family, you should check it out. Even though it's very tough to see. I think it you can rent it on like Amazon or something like that. Because he distributed it himself. You can buy a Blu-ray, which is beautiful. He like designed it all himself. And there's like a feature where he talks about like color timing and like a thick 50 oh, wow. page booklet. Yeah. I don't think I've seen any Patrick Wang movies actually. So I, I'm going to be honest. You know what? Because it's the holiday season and you're listening to this episode right now, I'm going to have a contest that if you want to win a copy of this movie, email me. First person to email me, I will send it to you. So, yep, there you go. Contest. Okay. (laughs) And I'll announce it. Can I win the contest? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Because you're doing this podcast. But, you know, in the spirit of giving, that's uh, I want to spread the in the family love. I have no financial ties to this movie. (laughs) I'm not advertising. I just love it. So what's your next one, Will? Well, we're talking about filmmakers whose settings who who the cities the towns the countries where they live are very much a character in their films to use a hoary old cliche mm-hmm. so we go from thailand to manchester new hampshire <laughs> okay for the next film on, on my list oh yes uh don't let the river beast get you Mwah. by uh writer star matt farley and director charles roxburgh what else can we say about matt farley that we have not already said we have dedicated a whole episode of this podcast to him some people may not know his deal though still Okay, yeah. They Maybe did. they're new and they're just listening to this because it's the best of the decade list. Because I should just say that this is a title that overlaps on both of our lists. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, when you mentioned it, I was like, oh, I may have missed it. And like, that is an instant like favor of the decade. Because if we're thinking like, what are the movies that defined the decade for yes. us? It's got to be this one. <laughs> that we have thought about and discussed and anytime it comes up. And that just felt like a revelation <laughs> yes. when I first saw it. Because it's... Oh, it, I'd like to say it's still a revelation. I've watched it since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's basically a no-budget regional uh, horror comedy Mm -hmm. with an emphasis on comedy. Yes. Uh, (laughs) With a de-emphasis on horror. Matt Farley, of course, has written over 20,000 songs on Spotify. Yeah, that's that's what he's most famous for. That's how he makes his living. And he makes these movies that I think he described it in your interview with him as... What if you made a movie starring that uncle yes. that, that you like? Well, like Matt Farley, he even before making these movies, he and his friends would have like movie nights where they'd watch like film shot on VHS. And what they loved was not like the gore or like nudity. They just love like the weird turn of phrase or like an accent that a character would have. Yeah, stilted line readings, mm-hmm. people who maybe were just living in the town. Yeah, they're up. not actors. And yeah. that them being on screen in a film that's distributed, like the tension there is funny already. <laughs> yeah, so it's these just very normal people, mm-hmm. ordinary people who Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh knew, spouting this loquacious dialogue. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> and like, we, like, a lot of people when they watch like the first five minutes of something like Don't Let the River Beast Get You, they're like, oh, it's bad on purpose. It's like Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. But, but it's no. not. It's not. <laughs> because it's genuinely, it like, you actually it is possible to get invested in this story. yes it is and everybody is so likable that it's clear that he's not making fun of them mm-hmm. you know like it's, he loves these characters and it's like he's inviting you into this world yeah that's right and I say this every time I talk about the movie it has without a doubt the funniest joke of the decade <laughs> in the last five minutes of the movie Will's laughing just thinking about it sometimes when I feel down I'll like go on YouTube and just watch that final scene and it never fails to make me laugh I often go on YouTube and watch <laughs> just parts of this movie like in particular that scene halfway through where it's the party where where Matt does that um, we're all having fun doing the, the river, river mud shuffle, shuffle. <laughs> 
<laughs> and everybody starts and dancing. And while I may not approve of her choice of, of husband... <laughs> I will adopt him. Oh, oh, it, oh, and we'll raise Bradley, her adopted son from another the marriage, marriage like as our own. <laughs> Bradley, he was a son from another marriage, but he's still a good kid. You're the best tutor in town. All right, I got to stop. This makes no sense to anybody who hasn't seen it, but it's on YouTube. Watch yes. it and like actually watch it. Like trap yourself with this movie. Yeah, don't like put it in a corner and like surf the web while you're watching it. Because I feel like in its own way, it's as hypnotic an experience as the Epichetpong movie <laughs> Well, I think that I brought that up during the Pitchapong episode that it has like the same theme and even like a monster in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Matt Farley, Pitchapong, again, they're one and the same. So uh, my next movie is, you know what? I'll give you the next one because we both doubled up on Don't Let the Reviews Get You. Sure. And, you know, listen, a lot of these titles are going to be familiar because we've talked about them in other episodes. <laughs> yep. But the next one is by Frederick Wiseman and it's Ex Libris, New York Public Library. I could have also chosen In Jackson Heights for this list. Uh, I just went with this one. You just love libraries. Because I love libraries. Yeah. And that sometimes that can make or break being on the top <laughs> ten list. And yeah, it's a over three hour film that's just chronicling the New York public library system from top to bottom. Every branch from the 42nd Street big flagship branch to way out in the outer boroughs from the microfilm room to big celebrity speakers to uh, just, you know, community events. And, you know, the movie is, it's certainly a political film. It shows you the threats that the library is under. So much of it depends on just the whims of donors and politicians but it's a film that's very that's very joyous it's like it, it's constantly showing the library as this very positive space of community and learning and sharing and how important it is and that it does cater to the rich all the time I, I mean it does cater to the rich and yeah. you see that in the last two shots of the movie mm -hmm. you know uh, we talked about it a lot on our Frederick Wiseman episode we should have just like taken chunks from the episode that we did this is like a clip show, <laughs> yeah, clip like, show yeah. so it's come to this yeah. important cinema club clip show oh no we're trapped in the freezer remember that time we did a Frederick Wiseman episode <laughs> So my next movie is one we've never talked about on the podcast. It's Fast and the Furious 5. You mean Fast 5. 5, that's right. So, I mean, me and Will have not shared this experience together, but me and my friends, Matthew Kumar, Peter Kaplowski, Pierce Dirks, Nate Wilson, we've all, like, become cult-like members of the Fast and the Furious franchise. And I feel like every time one comes out, you all get together and watch We watch all, all of, them. of them. I mean, that's uh, kind of soured a little bit after 8, which we didn't really like, and Hobbs and Shaw, which we didn't like either. Either. Yeah. But like Fast Five, me and Peter and Eastern, another friend of ours, went to go see in theaters, like kind of on a lark. And we left it being like, whoa, like, what is that? Like, well, it's like pure blockbuster filmmaking. Because I feel like Fast Five was the one where they finally got they the got formula. They got the formula. I had no affinity for the Fast and the Furious other than the fact that my stepbrother really loved it and I thought it was dumb when I finally watched it. My opinion of the first one still stands. What is it about Five? Five is to they just figure out what the template is. It's a heist film. It brings all these characters back from all the previous movies. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but the thing about Justin Lin and Vin Diesel in these films is that they're very committed to these pictures. I think Justin Lin, like, knows what kind of movie he's making. Vin Diesel, maybe not so much. Well, this sort of came into focus for me when I saw Hobbs and Shaw, oh, which gosh. I thought was shit. So terrible. And the fact that it was missing Vin Diesel. Yes. Because the rest I mean, of the even movie, Paul Walker, which yeah. really hurt eight that there was no Paul Walker figure. Like, who is it who made the joke that it's like a feature-length Instagram content? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the joke was it's a feature-length MTV Movie Award oh, introduction. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah. Because it's missing, because Vin Diesel takes it very seriously and he's mm -hmm. a great 
grounding force amidst all this insanity. That's right. And I did a write-up on Filmtrap.com in my top 10 movies. And I mentioned there that, like, I think it's Furious 7. I probably like that one more, the one directed by James Wan. But I think that Fast Five, like, it has everything that, like, made me fall in love with this franchise. And it does it so well. It also has, like, angry, sweaty rock, which when you see him in that movie and you see him in Hobbs and Shaw, they're basically two different characters. Mm-hmm. One of the rocks is, like, he's desperate. He hasn't had a hit in, like, five movies. So he doesn't care. He's just going to go all out. One of them is a rock that has to make sure that he has no edges and that he can work internationally in every market. (laughs) That's the one that's that's in Hobbs and Shaw. And yeah, so that's why I love this movie so much. What's your next one, Will? Well, this is one that I just have not been able to stop thinking of. And... You know, how many times does an 87-year-old filmmaker try to make a new kind of movie? Not often. But it happens. Try to make a new kind of movie or phone it in. (laughs) Well, and it's that ambiguity, I think, that makes this next selection interesting. It's uh, Clint Eastwood's The 1517 to Paris, which Justin heroically watched in advance of this. (laughs) Yes, I did. And I do remember, again, going to see this movie in a theater was one of the great experiences of this decade for me. Okay, so, but you were Clint Eastwood when you saw this movie. You were, like, on his team already. I was on his team, and some of it had to do with the fact that, like, I I like him as a cultural icon. Yes. And I like his longevity. I mean, I don't think I heard you talking about Sully um, very much when it came out. I mean, I liked Sully fine. Structurally, both films are the same. <laughs> yeah, um, but but Sully is a very professional piece of filmmaking. Yes, there's a section of it that was shot in IMAX. Yeah, and it's got big stars. Yeah, th- it is not the case with 1517 to Paris. So I went into 1517 to Paris intrigued that he had cast these actual guys, mm-hmm. these three sort of military all-rounds yes. who who foiled a terrorist attack on a train. Ooh, great sequence. It is a great sequence, and it's like American Sniper that I feel like because that sequence is so good and it comes near the end it colors everything that has come before (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i was intrigued like what is what is clint eastwood up to with this and the first 30 minutes of this movie are they seem like some of the worst filmmaking he's ever done it almost seems like tommy wiseau-ish yeah i felt so bad for jenna fisher and judy greer in this film and tony hale well he only appears in like one uh, scene (laughs) wait urkel's in this Urkel's the history professor who's, oh, wow. who, who's like, well, FDR was ready to strike so, at a moment. Or will you be ready? So I'm curious that, like, did Clint Eastwood make the decision, like uh, Steven Soderbergh in The Informant, to cast nothing but comedians in these serious roles? Because, like, it, that has to be a conscious decision, it, right? It has to be somebody's conscious decision. Yeah. Does he or, know like, Clint Eastwood is like, is? Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm a big Arrested Development fan. Yeah. <laughs> like, or Veep. So that's interesting. And then I started to, I started to get on this movie's side when there was that weird long Skype scene. Yes. And then when the three bros just go to Europe, when they're hanging around Amsterdam, when they're, it's 30 minutes of them just doing nothing. They're getting gelato. I was, I was like, oh my God. But okay. This is unbelievable. So I think though that, and we talked about this a little bit in like the back matter of last episode, that what fascinates you about this movie is not necessarily its content, but the fact that it exists was really widely and was directed by Clint Eastwood. Yes, because that this, is a lot of it. Because this movie, I can give you tons of like religious films 
that feel exactly <laughs> like this. <laughs> like all of those, like God's not dead, or um, what's the one that came out of the kid died? Heaven is real. Okay, what about the scene where they go clubbing? Where uh, it's just Clint with a GoPro in yes. a club because he's capturing beauty. There's stuff like that in those movies. Let, let us not forget Surviving Christmas. Yeah, who had some real shoddy cinematography in that as well. Okay, so oh, it, oh sorry, it, and I'm, I forgot a third point: the fact that the actual people are cast in the movie. So it is, it is a lot of that. Yeah, but I do genuinely like I, I was watching just enjoying like these guys are so affectless have They're you so watched lame. it since yeah i have okay good that's <laughs> what i want to hear i have i mean you know on paper when you say all that stuff that we just said like it's facet like all the comedians in that first half yeah. that is insane and then, and then finally on the train where great sequence where clint was so obsessive that he got like the guy who gets hit yeah. who's on the ground that was the real guy from the train really everybody who's in that scene was the real person That's on the train insane. except for the terrorist and in fact Clint Eastwood even looked into can I get the terrorist no according to the publicity he, he and they, of course the French government was like no you can't have the real terrorist I mean it all comes together at the end where you see like them get up on stage and it's just news footage of them receiving the medals like yeah. they didn't even have to restage it yeah <laughs> because they had the same actors yeah so I feel like we're not even that far apart on no. this movie except I mean, it's bad. <laughs> That's what it is. I understand you're you're approaching it from like, I can't believe this exists. Yeah. Like, isn't this crazy? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it's and a, nice, I, it's a I dog do, turd. It's I, weirdly shaped. Yeah. And I do, and I do love it. <laughs> it's a giant dog turd, and it came out of this tiny dog. That's crazy. I couldn't believe that tiny dog gave this big giant dog turd. Well, you know what, Justin? I'm glad you gave it a fair shot. I, you know, what? I'm glad I watched it because I, I it was nice to see all those comedians who I assume whoever was the casting manager had. Some blackmail information on them. They look so miserable. Maybe they wanted to work with Clint. Except for um, what's his name? The guy who Urkel? writes. No, no, no. Um, uh, uh, the guy that's on like Reno 911, and he wrote oh, that book. Yeah. Oh, I know who you're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, he wrote all the night at the museum. Tom, film. Tom Lennon. Yeah, Tom Lennon. He loves doing sell-up projects. Yeah. That's his thing because he yeah. shows up as well. That's right. So, what's your next one? All right. So mine is one that's on both of our lists, and it's A Simple Life, the Anhoy right. film. I actually cut it off my list just for this podcast. Oh, good. Cause I knew because I knew you. Were gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's on both our lists. Let's talk about it. So, A Simple Life is a film directed by Anne Hoy. We talked about it in our Anne Hoy episode, and it's basically just the story or like the last few years of a woman's life who her identity is based on being, I guess, the maid mm -hmm. of a rich family. Mm -hmm. And what happens when she gets so sick that she can't take care of herself. And, and the she, family has basically died off. It's just yeah. one guy, Andy Lau. Uh, I believe his mom is still alive uh, as well. Okay, yeah. yeah. And he has siblings, but. The woman is like, listen, like, I don't want you to take care of me. You could put me in a fancy home. I don't want to be in a fancy home. Just put me in, like, just a reasonable place. And it's about those decisions and where essentially how she sees herself in her own life. And, you know, those final years. It's not a film that, like, builds any big dramatic moment mm -hmm. or any big reveal. And I think that's why it's so good. Yeah. That you get to see all of these, like, slices of life portrayed realistically and also because it's based on the producer's actual life reflected with all these megastars mm -hmm. and you know for people who watch a lot of Hong Kong films it's also like it's a great movie if you don't know these but the fact that Andy Lau was playing this role who is a huge megastar mm -hmm. also like brings it like extra gravitas to what's going on and has cameos by Choi Hark and Sam Ohan <laughs> that's right and the film disses Choi Hark at one point very realistically I might yeah. add and deservedly so I mean I remember seeing this movie for the first time at the beginning of the decade and finding it a little boring. Yeah. And you're like, Sam Hong didn't have any fight scenes. <laughs> and then I saw it again at the end of the decade 
and uh, in the almost 10 years that passed in between, it's like... <laughs> you were looking at yourself in the mirror, you're like, I'm so old. But actually, it's yeah. like your relationship to, let's say, your parents or mm-hmm. or other other people in your life, it changes. Yeah. And... Uh, well, films don't deal with this kind of material, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, somebody dying is not a big dramatic thing. Like, in the movie, and this is not a spoiler, at one point, Andy Lau has to make a decision like, I gotta go back to work. Like, I just cannot stay with yeah. her, and she passes away. Like, that's what happens to people. Yeah. There's no big reveal. There's no, like, big turn. And I think that's what makes the movie work as well as it does. And there's ambiguity in the fact that their relationship is, I mean, it's not mother and son. Yes. But it is almost mother it's and basically son. mother and son yeah. yeah yeah so i mean if people haven't checked this movie out check it out i mean everyone should check out all the movies that we're talking about on this list so what's your next one will i have another slow-paced asian film in here <laughs> yeah and it's stray dogs by simon lang mm-hmm. which is a very strange cryptic and elliptic uh, elliptical film one of a number that he's made about the taipei underclass yeah, I'm more of a fan of the one where that monk walks. He made that one, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's even slower than this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and, I mean, I'm not going to bother describing the plot, oh, yeah. because there's not much plot, mm-hmm. but it is about a, a certain number of poor people. Yeah, a guy who loses his gun and needs to find it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy who uh, spends ten minutes crying with a cabbage that he alternately cries into and eats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, I mean, it's uh, seeing this movie at TIFF in 2012, I think. Trapped in the theater. Trapped in the theater, stuck in the middle of a row in these long, long takes. Uh, you know, the sound design is incredible where it's just in, you're just enveloped with rain and you're stuck in these images, beautiful images, images that go beyond the limits of human endurance at times. And sometimes the movie is very funny. Sometimes the movie is very sad. There's a range of emotions that the movie evokes uh, and it climaxes with this 14 minute I swear to god shot of two people staring at something off screen and watching this not knowing that this shot was coming something broke in me and it's and it's <laughs> you never just start been to repaired. like l- laugh like a Robert De Niro in Cape Fear yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> like, like you actually go insane watching this <laughs> yeah, shot yeah, yeah. because you, and I'm actually sorry that having having said this you spoiled it I spoiled it people yeah. won't have the same experience that I had because you're watching it like how long could this possibly go and you're like, I'm bored wait no I'm kind of into this now what, oh my god they moved they moved yeah. oh my god is this is this gonna keep going <laughs> We're going to have to do a, an episode on that director someday. I would love to, yeah. I haven't actually seen that film, so I'm going to have to check it out. I but... mean, it's just a movie that had a big effect on me because that and I think Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman mm-hmm. were movies that showed me that not all boredom is the same. You know, I'm glad that you had kind of a slow-paced Asian one because I'm going to bring it up as a slow-paced Asian one as well. And that's the Indian film Ega, the movie about a man who gets killed and comes back as a fly who wants revenge <laughs> on his murderer. I'm lying. It's not slow-paced at all. I mean, I think we've both been very interested in Indian cinema this decade. Yes, because it's great. But you haven't seen Ego, right? No, I saw the director's next film, I, the letter I. Nope, Bahubali is the director's next film. Yeah, Uh, You're thinking I? I is the guy who did Robot in Robot 2.0. Ego is the guy who did Bahubali, and he did... I mean, I love the Bahubali movies. Yeah, they're great. He's, like, not the better director, but the one who more kind of, like, tells linear stories, if you know what I mean. I've sort of felt that watching these Indian movies this decade, we've been getting sort of the same charge that people might have got out of Hong Kong. Yes, like in the 80s and 90s, yeah. Especially that, like, no one else was, like, watching them, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) But Ego is one that, like, I mean, my pal Peter, like, fought 
tooth and nail to bring it to like the After Dark Film Festival where it played really well. Because it's a movie that just works. Like you hear that premise, it's so ridiculous. But the film just like, you get involved in what's going on and like the clever ways they play out this premise. And there's musical numbers, like a montage sequence, like the fly is working out. And the performance from the villain in this movie is so good because it's essentially like, a one-man play where he has to react comedically to this fly, like, doing, like, um, Roadrunner-style, like, lighting him on fire, or, like, somehow it fires a gun at him. It's just wonderful. It's a movie that, like, not enough people have seen. I mean, it didn't even get picked up. It was on Netflix for a little while under a different title because it was dubbed into Hindi. What was the different title? It was, like, McKay, I believe. Okay. Uh, But, like, it didn't... They made an international cut that did not sell. It played it after dark, and it just did not sell to any company after that. Mm-hmm. The good thing about Indian films now is that most of these are available on, on Amazon Prime. Because Indian films now make a deal with Amazon. So like Saho, the film we talked about, mm-hmm. is on there. After two months that they come out in theaters, they come onto Prime. We just need to know that they're there to be able to watch them. And how do you... I mean, there's so much stuff on there, it's hard to know what the good stuff exactly. is. Exactly. Well, I can tell you now, Ega... One of the best films of the decade. Probably when you see it, so you'll be like, I've never been this entertained. I would highly check it out. What's your next one, Will? Well, next for me is uh, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. Mm-hmm. And I considered putting The Trial on here, the Tim Heidecker on cinema uh, trial. Oh, that would have been a real cage uh, cinema move, yeah. Because I, I, it has played as a movie. Has it? It's like seven hours, so it's like out one. <laughs> yeah, they planned it at the Museum of the Moving Image, and I do think the trial on cinema thing is an incredible achievement. All right, so are you going to say a little something a little bit controversial here, but the recent Tim Heidecker movie that came out of the on-cinema brand... Mr. America. Yeah, that one didn't work for us. Yeah, I was disappointed. And I feel like the bit, there wasn't enough in that bit, while the trial was a culmination of all the on-cinema stuff that had come before. Yeah, well, with Mr. America, it's like he was wandering around just doing, kind of doing the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. and it didn't it didn't build. Yeah, the Sasha Baron Cohen energy of Tim Heidecker, it doesn't really work. Like, that's not where those ki- the world those characters yeah. live in. But the trial, what a beautiful, I mean, I haven't watched all of on-cinema, but I've seen Blame to Me, the And the, the sheer bits. commitment to the bat. So insane. <laughs> it is like out one, like real, like you're watching like a play play out. Yeah, yeah. But billion dollar movie. So Tim Eric's billion dollar movie, which is another one that actually when I saw it at near the beginning of the decade, I didn't like all that I have much. not seen it since the first time I saw it. I remember seeing it and thinking, well, it's funny, but there was something about its relentless negativity that mm-hmm. weighed me down a little bit, which I don't feel anymore because yeah. I feel like this is a movie that in addition to being extremely funny, it's like the world is a hellhole. <laughs> yes. It, uh, you mean now? Y- yeah. Yes, yeah. That it's is like, true. It's like if you want to know what's wrong with the world, just watch Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie, which the, the bleed I, but suburban I, mall the landscape. The thing is, like, I know the world is a hellhole. Twitter tells me every day, thousands of ways. <laughs> okay, but you get to see it really funny. Like, yes. So, just one gag. I know, I know. The opening of the film is very funny, <laughs> and we bring it up every time we watch a Chinese movie. The opening is funny with all the logos, but also there's a scene where Eric goes on a date with a girl to a restaurant called Inbreadables, which <laughs> okay. is a bread-themed novelty restaurant where yep. all, where all the cutlery, all the plates and everything is made of bread. Yep. And uh, and they're like, you know, this is kind of a funky place. <laughs> and I think of that whenever I pass that Garfield-themed restaurant <laughs> on Bloor Street. It's like, yeah. this, this Wait, is... Wait, how often do you watch, walk by the Garfield restaurant? Often enough. Every time you're like, hmm, maybe today's the day I go in. <laughs> it's like... I give myself a lasagna. It's like... 
uh, restaurants like Imbredibles are, yeah. are the beauty that the world has to offer us. <laughs> so why don't you just accept that beauty and take it for face value, Will? I, I guess, yeah. Yeah, that is the next level when Tim Heidecker makes a movie about how the world is just great and there's no irony and everything's fine, even <laughs> though it's not. It's a hellhole. What's your next one? Why don't you play in hell? Mm. Japanese, Shion Sono. We talked about him when we did our episode. There's a movie about the love of movie making. And as Will said, maybe a little too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did say that, but your enthusiasm for it, I like so much that I really ought to revisit it. Mm-hmm. I think I might not have been in the mood for it that night. Sometimes, at midnight. <laughs> because, yeah, we saw it at Midnight Madness. and I mean, I saw it before that. In the comfort of my own home. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Which I might enjoy. I might enjoy it more that way. I would say that two hours into it, you know, at 2.30 a.m., yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I want to go to sleep. Yeah, I understand. But what's it about? Uh, it's about a young filmmaker, and by young, I mean in his 30s, who continually making movies with his friends and suddenly gets the opportunity to make a feature film. But he has to shoot a real-life um, battle between two Yakuza groups. <laughs> and it's just about putting that together and just the enthusiasm of the group and just the fun Shion Sono is having with this movie. It's obviously like his story or I guess um, an illustration of how he felt. He was a filmmaker as a teenager. A real day for night. Yeah, and he actually has Tak Sakaguchi, who he had worked with very early on as well, playing one of the main roles in the film as the action star. And Tak Sakaguchi, star versus, love him, doing comedy, love it even more. Mm-hmm. So it's a film that just like really resonates with me. And I love it. It's the best. And I think that, you know, if you are a movie maker and you watch this movie, the pure enthusiasm on screen, especially if you like this type of movie. I mean, there's no way that you can't be um, endeared by it. So what's your next one, Will? Well, this is the second of two A Pitch and Pong movies on the list, which is Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. It's the fun one. The fun one, because it's got <laughs> laser-eyed monkey man <laughs> Yeah, that's it. right. <laughs> and, I mean, it's it's a wonderfully sort of enveloping movie. It's a relaxing movie, actually. Mm-hmm. You can watch it and just luxuriate <laughs> in its sounds and images. Fall asleep. Fall asleep to yeah. it, and that's okay. Yeah, that's I okay. I think A Pitch and Pong would be like it if you fall asleep <laughs> yeah. sometimes. Start snoring. But I am struck when I watch it by just the sort of generosity and the openness of a pitch pong spirit. You know, there is no clear delineation between life and death in his movies. There's no clear delineation of time. Uh, these things drift in and out. And he also doesn't tell you what to think of what he's putting on the screen mm-hmm. either. His movies Very funny. Find- very funny. Yeah. His, his movies are very participatory. And I think the fact that this movie is funny is not well enough understood because no. I think people... Because it's serious. An art, it's an art house movie. It's an art house movie and it's slow and yeah. it's difficult. So I think people feel intimidated by this movie sometimes. But, and you know, if you're laughing at what you think is a joke, you're like, wait, is it actually funny or am I just not getting it? And I think if you see the uh, monkey with the laser eyes, <laughs> yeah, it is it's funny. It's a joke. Or, yeah. well, you know, when the woman has the romantic encounter with the eel. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It is funny. Yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. And Double it, billet was don't let yeah. the river be skate you. <laughs> yeah, and it's just a beautiful film. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So my next one is, I should have put a Steven Soderbergh movie on this list because Steven Soderbergh is a filmmaker I think a lot. Could I have uh, done the wild move and just like the trial, put the Nick on this list, which he directed every episode of? I could have. I didn't. Could I have put Haywire on, a film that's haunted me since its release <laughs> and that I am now a complete convert to? Maybe. But instead, I put Blue Ruin, which is not a Steven Soderbergh film, but I think has kind of the same aesthetic values. It's a film directed by Jeremy Saulnier, who had done Murder Party before. He's a cinematographer and directed Green Room after. And I think it's just like 
a simple, straightforward genre movie told in a very slow-paced and deliberate style that just when I watch it, I'm like, I love this. This is great. I kind of want to make a movie like that. And that's how Impossible Horror, it didn't come out of that. Mm. But um, me and the co-writer of the movie and the producer, Nate Wilson, we talked about Blue Ruin all the time and the kind of aesthetic value of it. I mean, if you watch Impossible Horror, for the first like 30 minutes, it's Blue Ruin. And then I'm like, all right, here comes <laughs> Sam Raimi. <laughs> so uh, it's about halfway there. But I got to say, like Blue Ruin is a movie I think about all the time. And that when I think of like low budget films, and it's not super low budget, there's a... You know, some kind of semi-famous people. Have you liked Solnier's uh, stuff after that? I like Green Room. I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little disappointed. Mm. And I did not like uh, Hold the Dark, which yeah. was, unfortunately, I had read the novel and I was like, oh, this novel's terrible. And then I saw the movie and I'm like, I do not like this movie because it's exactly the novel. Huh. <laughs> so what do you have next up, Will? Uh, Abel Ferreira makes an appearance on the list. With, Wait, what? With Welcome to New York. Oh, I've not seen Welcome to New York. We should point out that... You're talking about the theatrical cut, right? Well, I'm talking about his director's cut. Yeah, director's cut. That's what I mean. Because the the, uh, IFC American cut butchers it. So Gerard Depardieu at his... Slobbiest? Slobbiest, yeah. yeah. I know you're like, what can I say that's not too offensive? Yeah. uh, He, you know, he plays... Uh, not Dominic Strauss-Kahn. <laughs> Wink! <laughs> Especially in the IFC cut. That's right. But a, a man who may one day become the president of France, if mm-hmm. he can just... Get over this um, accusation of something that he may have done. <laughs> the movie opens with a series of uh, graphic sex scenes and just a, a peek into the toxic culture of this man's world. And then, in the midst of all this, in Ferreira's coldly objective style he sexually assaults a maid and then he goes on about his day and then oh all of a sudden he's being arrested at the airport what's going on what could he have done wrong what's going on and then his his wife you know flies in he's under house arrest at a sixty thousand dollar a month yeah uh, condo in soho and his uh wife you know they have a what i imagine would be sort of like a bill and hillary clinton style relationship (laughs) The the whole movie, it's like... Whoa, what is this, Michael and Us? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, well, we should do this one on Michael and Us. Now yeah, there you go. Uh, the, we, you mean you. Me and the other <laughs> yeah, guy. Yeah, the other guy. I think it's uh, one of the best expressions of Abel Ferreira's sort of later style, this, uh, you know, n- not, not imposing, mm-hmm. more objective, but also sort of dreamy style. Uh, I think it has a lot to say about the hell world that we live in and, and <laughs> the way that people like this. The hell world. Top 10 <laughs> yeah. will flow. But actually, the, yeah. way, the way that men like this operate and mm-hmm. how they commit crimes and how they uh, get away to live with, with crimes. Those crimes. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there's there's like five minutes of the movie where he is subjected to a humiliating strip search at prison. That's the one moment where he gets to go to hell. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, he's in that $60,000 a month place. And, you know, you see a lot about the criminal justice system in America. I mean, Ferreira shows you a lot of things and you can make what you will of them. It's sort of like the inverse of uh, a movie that may be coming later on my list. <laughs> oh, okay. Stylistically. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, a little bit of teaser there. Teaser. <laughs> coming attractions. So my next one is Listen Up, Philip. Alex mm. Ross Perry. We talked about Alex Ross Perry before. I almost put the color wheel on this list. The color wheel is an honorable mention for me. And But Listen Up, Philip, I think, is a movie I think about more, mm-hmm. only because I look at the Jason Schwartzman character and I go, oh, man, they're all on my Twitter feed every day. <laughs> oh, like me? <laughs> yeah, like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where, I, like, 
I, I feel like the characters in Listen Up Phillips, specifically Jason Schwartzman, is a perfect extension or, I guess, evolution of that Woody Allen, Neebish kind of, like, funny person. Like, Jason Schwartzman in that movie is funny. Like, he says kind of funny things, mm-hmm. but he's also a huge jackass, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's terrible. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how his funny side and his jackass side, yeah. like, are competing with each other and, and informing each other, of Yeah, course. and it's like, it, and it's a movie that's like, wait, are we supposed to like this person because he's funny and he's Jason Schwartzman? But no, he's actually a huge piece of shit and a big part of the movies is Elizabeth Moss kind of disconnecting from him and be able to go her own way and at the same time you have the story of Philip trying to impress Jonathan Price who's even a bigger asshole and loser who's all alone by himself and that also made me realize like you know, in life, who are you trying to impress? Like, these heroes? They, they suck. <laughs> they probably suck even more than you do. So when you come to that realization, it's very freeing. Thank you, Alex Ross Perry. The relationship between the Jonathan Price character mm-hmm. and the Jason Schwartzman character, that sort of very toxic mentor-mentee relationship is one that I haven't often seen articulated in at least, at least the way that Alex Ross Perry does. Well, I think that, like, oftentimes... One of the characters would be the bad guy, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. like, Alex Ross Perry, he's just ripping off Philip Roth in this movie and, like, right. bringing it to the screen. But it's like, these guys, they they have the same positive traits and the same negative traits, and the negative traits are, like, mutually reinforcing. Yeah. And, like, the whole movie is essentially, it's like, the Philip character has to make a decision. Is that, like, does he continue to be this asshole, or does he have a little bit of self-awareness? And not, like, the illusionary self-awareness that he talks about all the time, like Woody Allen style, but right. actual self-awareness awareness and self-actualization what's amazing about the movie is that he makes the choice to be an asshole i think it says it in the voiceover too yeah where it's like he continued to live his life and he was alone very definitive right which is great and then you see the end credits where you see all the books that he made yeah exactly so it's like he was making books the whole time and he was probably very critically lauded yeah but he was alone and he was miserable right. like the johnson price character love it well in the last 10 years one of the big trends in film i'm putting on my trend uh, yeah my trend watcher hat yep uh transformers yeah. <laughs> Remix. Yeah, no, it's uh, the digitization and potential democratization of the media. Mm. Uh, you know, so 35 millimeter obviously is going the way of the dodo, but there are many more ways to make films. Uh, there are lighter cameras available. I mean, let's face it, filmmaking is still largely a hobby of the idle rich. Yes. <laughs> uh, but there is the potential for different kinds of stories different kinds of communities to make their voices heard oh okay i sound so that, 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 that was that a real on. um like why i'm like what movie is he and then i went ah yes i know what he's talking about i'm talking about who killed captain alex <laughs> who killed captain alex <laughs> yeah i mean we did a whole episode on this topic we're Hollywood. yeah we love it but, this was almost on my list i saw it on wills i was like ah, i don't need to include it right so i mean to those who didn't hear that episode what Hollywood is it's this neighborhood uh, this uh, slum actually yeah. in uganda where there's this this filmmaking community led by the visionary director Nabwana IGG. Mm-hmm. And it's very democratic. It's very open. Anybody who's in the community can take part. A lot of the children take part in the movies and they make ridiculous action movies. Oh, so good. Action packed. And when you first hear about these movies, you think, and you, if you see the trailer for Who Killed Captain Alex, you'll you be think, like, oh, it's funny because it's bad so and they bad don't have any good. money. Yeah. But no, because you watch these movies and you're instant. I mean, because they actually work as action movies. Mm-hmm. And they're like, if you took the Chuck Norris movies and cut them down to only the good parts. Yes. And then you also had a guy talking about how amazing they were and making jokes as it went along. That is the narrator, the yeah. video jockey. Mm-hmm. The movies are just so exhilarating. And I mean, we have the advantage as well that we 
we got to see one live. <laughs> Which was just an incredible experience, seeing that at the last Toronto Film Festival, mm-hmm. where the director, uh, Nabwana IGG, and the narrator, Vijay Emmy, came to Toronto. I-, I think this was the first time they'd seen their work projected in a movie theater, mm-hmm. and, you know, a thousand people in the audience cheering <laughs> yeah, them on. Them it was on. great. And, uh, yeah, the fact that they can go from making these movies to just their to just the village these yeah. movies weren't supposed to move beyond the village yeah as we said in the episode I believe that like they'd make a movie they burn a bunch of DVDs give them out to people that buy them and then they'd erase their hard drives and start again the movie's just gone right. because it's time to move on to the next thing but now they have an international cult yeah exactly and, and that's amazing and uh, they're still making movies right now you can go over there and be in one of their movies you can someone in Toronto David Bertrand went and did it he just like jumped on a plane and went a few years ago and he got killed in one of their movies yeah. <laughs> so yeah insane uh, and, and there's an, a great Blu-ray that yeah, the American, American Genre Film Archive put out. Check it out. Get all your friends together. If there's a movie that you want to bring together people for the holiday season and have that, you know, helpful community spirit, no movie is better than Who Killed Captain Alex. <laughs> so my next movie is uh, a film that you, most people may not have seen. 8888. Did you see it, Will? No, because it's not easy to see. The director actually put it on Vimeo. It's 65 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, the director, I'm going to say his name wrong, is Isaiah Medina. And it's an experimental 65-minute film that's just kind of documenting the state of poverty of young people in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. So it's like a bunch of images, and you hear a lot of voices kind of talking uh, on the phone or leaving voicemail messages or just talking to each other. And like a story kind of starts to bubble from underneath like all these like this tangle of sound and then suddenly like it'll jump and you'll be lost again and then like Mm -hmm. something will come up until it just like emotionally builds to like whoa and it doesn't like build like a climax or anything like that but just the weight of all this stuff happening i watch it just sitting at home on my computer and i found it like deeply moving Mm -hmm. and you know i'm not an experimental film uh nut or anything like that so this is not my area of expertise but like something like this that it is difficult, and everybody who's watched it is like, like it starts off with like you hear a voice, and then like it'll go out almost as if like there's a mistake on your computer, and you're like something going on. Then the voice will pop in, you hear like three words, but it's almost like it's warning you at the beginning was like the toughest part, and then it comes easier as it goes along. I recommend anybody who's interested in like what I just explained to check it out. It's on Vimeo, 65 minutes long, but I think it's a masterpiece, so I recommend checking it out. 65 minutes, Canadian too. Yeah. What what else is there to say? 65 minutes. Yeah, That's all you need to know. It's the length of a poverty row film. So. <laughs> Uh, the last movie on my list is The Wolf of Wall Street by Martin Scorsese. And I think Martin Scorsese is no, not... Perfect. My film also has a wolf in it, my last one. So. Well, we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. Wolf of Wall Street, I think Scorsese is as good as he's ever been. Yep, you know? I agree. I mean, you can't say that about a lot of directors. You know what I did know is that when he made The Irishman, he had to shoot with like a giant rig that had three cameras on it at all times. For the de-aging? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it was like a 3U rig, which is very difficult to move. And he still made a film that still felt dynamic. Like... And I mean, The Wolf of Wall Street, I mean, you, so good. you would think a 24-year-old guy made it. <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. it's so dynamic. And but I, Will, doesn't it glorify, glorify its yes. character? Yeah, uh, you have to be insane if that's what you get out of that movie. I mean, the brilliance of the movie is that no, I mean, if if you have any inkling of conscience, <laughs> yes. what you're seeing in this movie horrifying. is horrifying. And yet, the movie is fun also upfront about the fact that yeah, it would be fun to live like this for a while. <laughs> yeah, it would. And so you, the movie trusts you to deal with that mm-hmm. and and to reconcile that. And you know, Leonardo DiCaprio has never been better. I, it's a movie that just like cuts through any pieties about the rich. Yeah, it's like. There's nothing noble about They're these pathetic. People. They're losers. And it, it, 
it all comes down to that early scene where he's with Matthew McConaughey and he says to him, but surely if both I and my customers make money, that's good for both of us. And McConaughey says, no, it's all about getting their money yeah. into your wallet. The movie, great Spike Jones performance. <laughs> a great time. Uh, uh, what's the guy, the name of the guy who directed Lion King? John Favreau. Oh, John Favreau. He's, would... he's in it for a couple oh, seconds. Oh, speaking of directors, Rob Reiner. Oh, well, Rob Reiner actually is <laughs> great, great in it. the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, yeah, the last movie on my list is LBJ. (laughs) (laughs) So my last movie is SPL2, A Time for Consequences. Oh, man. So this is a movie that, you know, it came down to the wire where I'm like, I don't know, do I include this movie or not? Uh, If this wasn't on here, I would have probably put uh, Who Killed Captain Alex. But I thought about, like, what movie have I watched in a theater, an action film, that, like, I'm like, ah, that was so much fun, and I recommended it. I must have watched this movie almost a dozen times with a dozen different people. And most, and like, just laudatory reactions every time. People are like, you see any good martial arts films lately? I'm like, mm, SPL 2, Time for Consequences. Like, okay. And just like getting into it in a way that like, that's what you want from martial arts movies, especially when you watch it with somebody else, mm-hmm. is like the feeling of escalation as you're watching it. That you're yeah. like, oh man, it's not just like, you know, when I was a teenager, I would sometimes show my friends like, oh, come and watch this one fight scene. Because I knew they couldn't sit through the whole movie because it was a little bit like all over the place. And SPL 2 is a movie that just like, it flows to a climax. Mm-hmm which is very rare in mar- a lot of martial arts movies. Not even Jackie Chan films often do that. And the best ones like Police Story number 1 or Drunken Master 2, that's why people love it so much is that it builds that climactic sequence. Definitely SPL2 is one of the only martial arts movies this decade to sort of recapture some of that magic. Yeah, I think it's probably the last one. <laughs> yeah, because the people in it like Tony Jaa. Yeah, or Wu Jing. They're, uh, they're actual martial, martial arts stars. It's directed by Soi Chang, who actually hadn't made any action films up until that point. And he was kind of like a he's a very bleak director, mm-hmm. but I think it works he's very committed to the movie that he's putting on screen and it's a messy film like the beginning the first 20 minutes i'm like what's going on it's also very dark it's about organ trafficking which was every hong kong and japanese action film were about organ trafficking i mean if you walk down the street in chinatown you would see people protesting organ yeah, trafficking. it was a big day. deal yeah. i mean it's still a big deal it's yeah. not going away but i think that kind of darkness and that commitment you know i can't even name another martial arts film that's come out since then that i've enjoyed as much as this one mm-hmm. because maybe paradox which is a semi-sequel to SBL2, but it's not as good. And yeah, so that's why I put it on this list, because I'm like, listen, this movie, I had such an, a reaction to it at Midnight Madness. I remember I saw it with Matthew Kumar, and we were standing in the balcony, and I think it may be one of the rare moments that like we stood up when the movie ended, and like during the movie playing, and like applauded. There's <laughs> yeah. a sequence at the end of the movie where it looks like a character's going to die, and then there's like an out-of-nowhere save that like the Midnight Madness audience went nuts when yeah. it happened, and like that's the magic that you want when you're mm-hmm. watching that kind of genre movie. Mm-hmm. So, that's it. This was a long episode. Yeah. <laughs> Probably longer than our top 10 of 2019, I bet. Christ. Yeah, so... Uh, so, that's the decade. That's the decade. See you in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Doesn't that's the Doesn't this feel a bit like a season finale episode? Because <laughs> yeah. so many things that we talked about in other episodes... <laughs> What's the big twist that happens at the end <laughs> of this episode? As per usual, you can send emails at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first email is from Nathan Wisnicki. And it goes, hey guys... Love the podcast. The Patreon episodes definitely bring the yucks. Just dropping in to say I think I know the movie Will's been looking for that he mentioned in the last episode about oh. the Christmas tree that got burned alive. Oh, my God. Yeah. Will's reacting like I did not already send him this email. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm, I'm, re- I'm recreating. <laughs> the moment of the, me. The this, re- this email came hours after I posted the episode. 
Because when you sent me this email... You're like, you had a heart attack, right? Because I, I have been looking for this movie. I've been trying to figure out what this movie yes. was for 20 years. Yeah, and you could not figure out what Co- it was. Couldn't find it. And, and now I have a forum. Yeah, it's called The Fur Tree. And... I said it was Canadian. I actually went... I have, like, a very thick book that's all the, the shorts that the NFB made, and you can go by, like, subject, and I'm like, Christmas tree, tree. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't find it. And it turns out it was Canadian. It was by the same production company who made And of Green Gables, hmm. but it's not from, like, the NFB or the government organizations. It's called The Fur Tree. It's based on the Hans Christian Andersen story, and you were right. It is 30 minutes long. <laughs> yeah. That's the running time. And I... I saw that there is a clip on YouTube mm-hmm. that's just like the first five minutes. And yeah, so I, I couldn't see the clip of the tree burning. <laughs> yeah, you could. Which I, I apparently have to or pay money if I <laughs> yes. want to see that. Yeah, like a n- normal watching stuff. But hearing that tree's voice. Did it like bring back like. Oh my God. Remembrance of things fast? Oh my God. It was like I was in senior <laughs> kindergarten all over again. Well, the letter continues. I remember being read the original Hans Christian Andersen story as a child and being incredibly depressed by it. By sheer coincidence, a mere days later, I then had to relive the experience by watching the short film in school. Oh, yes. What a harrowing week. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, he confirmed that it's as, like, depressing as you remember it being. Yeah. That it wasn't just, like, a childhood uh, magnification. I wonder if any of my other classmates from senior kindergarten have the same memory of <laughs> this Time to reach I out. Because I think I remember it not being a crowd pleaser in class. <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> uh, two obligatory suggestions for future episodes. Critic Manny Farber and director Delmer Daves. Farber is one of those critics who I think is still very well respected. I think. Maybe a stature diminished under the weight of all those boring paintings. <laughs> oh. But whose work is rarely probed anywhere beyond academia. If people mention him at all these days, it's usually by way of the whole white elephant art, termite art thing. Are you guys fans? Foes? Is his writing just too impenetrable for anyone to enjoy outside of the classroom? We've brought up Manny Farber before. We're going to do a termite art episode at one point. Oh, yeah. Oh, we should still do that. We should still do that. So, yeah, that is a good suggestion. Uh, Manny Farber, not... Someone I'm super familiar with. I've read all the big essays. Well, I have a yeah. collection of criticism on my shelf to you, go through. You have negative space? Yeah, I have negative yeah, space. Yeah, I mean, I I like Manny Farber. I do find his prose difficult. and mm-hmm. I, I find his, his thinking difficult. Yes, it is not... Uh, why can't we have just easy guys like J-Ro? <laughs> just give it to us. <laughs> because it's loopy and it's strange. It's very idiosyncratic. And I think, yeah, I, I find Manny Farber a little bit difficult to connect with at times, but I keep trying. Yeah. And his central ideas, underground film or cartoon hip acting yeah. or, yeah, white elephant art, termite <laughs> art, that stuff is very strong. Manny Farber is one of those fascinating figures, though, that, like, he just gave up movies. He's like, I'm just going to be a painter. Good for him. So there's, like, a book of criticism. Yeah. And I think that's, he didn't write that much criticism either yeah. I, I also just love his taste I yeah. like I like that he liked you know the highest of high art like Michael Snow and yeah. Chantal Ackerman and he liked two-fisted Howard Hawks Samuel movies. Fuller Samuel yeah. Fuller and sort of nothing in between he wrote he wrote I think the first really serious critical essay about the Looney Tunes cartoons mm-hmm. I mean he's really a proto the important cinema club and then we came in and we just shaved it off into the pure diamond that's right <laughs> that film criticism can't be that's right and uh, the letter continues and Delmer Daves is an interesting case of a guy who might very well be a journeyman but who also trod on some of the very strange ground that Anthony Mann did in terms of overlapping the western and noir genres with films like Jubal, The Badlanders, and of course, 310 to Yuma. I'm not that familiar with Delmer Daves. I think I've seen 310 to Yuma. I saw, I think he did Dark Passage with Humphrey Bogart. Mm. That's the one where the first third of it is from Humphrey Bogart's POV. Yes, for like the first 
half hour. Yeah, it's yeah, from yeah. Uh, his POV. Yes, that's right. So I'm interested in Delmar Daves. I'm not an expert, but no. I'm interested. And the letter finishes up. Thanks for the great show, Nathan. Well, thank you for clearing up that mystery that uh, Will has been haunted um, with for too many years. Seriously, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I can finally sleep now. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, next week, in the spirit last week, I said that we're selling out. We want to get as many hits as we possibly can because we've been doing international filmmakers. So I think we're doing the thing that everyone wants to hear about, the most base artist that we can talk about. Who is it, Will? We are talking about Sean Costello. Sean Costello? Is that some kind of Tom Hanks figure? Oh, no. Oh, no. no. Wait, wait, wait. We're supposed to be selling. Who is the Sean Costello fellow? Sean... He's not an art filmmaker, is he? Oh, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> uh, it's an art of a sort. Uh, hmm. we... A pleasurable art? Oh, I think so. <laughs> yes, we return to the world of pornography <gasps> and not high class pornography either. Wait, is he like the Fellini of pornography? Uh, he's more like the James Joyce of uh, pornography. But, <laughs> oh, well, that is very generous. <laughs> but, but but specifically James Joyce's love letters. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that he's more like those pulp novelists in like the 50s who are being paid by the, it, the word. Yeah. He's like if you've if you've been in a bathroom stall and seen something dirty written on the wall. <laughs> yeah, that's who he is. He's like that. So I mean, we should give a little taste. I mean, Sean Costello is probably most famous for making. Was it the two day quickie or the one day quickie? Yeah, he made one day, one day wonders. One day wonders, called, yeah, which were porno films, an hour long, shot in one day. Mm-hmm. He made dozens of them, and he's like the guy who kind of pioneered that. Yeah, he made it like I am a factory line, and I can deliver. But sometimes he was a little bit artistic. So we're going to be talking about this is our Christmas episode, yeah. by the way. So <laughs> right. we are going to be talking about his Christmas porn film, The Passions of Carol. Mm-hmm. This we- was his big blowout. Like it's going to be a big deal Christmas movie. That's right. It was going to. Uh, and, and it wasn't, in no. fact. But we'll talk about it in the episode. Yeah, and we're also talking about maybe his most infamous movie, Water Power. <laughs> I mean, he has another infamous film that I brought up, and we'll mention Forced Entry. Forced Entry. <laughs> Will's with... like, that one's not that funny. How about we go with the one about the guy who gives enemas? Yeah. I mean, guys, if you want to watch Forced Entry, by all means, check it out. Ooh, not on our recommendation, no. <laughs> not, not on our recommendation, no. It's, it's a pretty ugly film, but... Yeah, uh, Water Power, that, that one's good for a few laughs. It's about the Enema Bandit, <laughs> right. played by Jamie Gillis. Uh, Wait, but isn't Forced Entry Harry Reeves? Isn't he the funny one? Oh, not in this one. <laughs> yeah, okay. Not in this one. And also, Sean Costello made almost entirely films funded by the Mafia. Yes, he was very involved. Well... Not involved with the mafia, like he worked for the mafia, and he was aware of it at the time. Yeah, like I believe the uh, Water Power film was funded by the Colombo crime family, Mm -hmm. for instance. And the great part about Sean Costello, great storyteller, and he's talked a lot about his porn career as well. So definitely the most abject filmmaker we've ever tackled. (laughs) Yes. And I'm really looking forward to it. (laughs) All right, so next uh, week, it's a Sean Costello Christmas. Oh, and by the way, on our Patreon this week, we talk about the best movie of the last decade, which is Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So I I want to give a taste for people that are not Patreon subscribers, I do not remember the last time we were that angry recording a podcast. <laughs> we were talking for 20 minutes about the Grinch. Like, oh, so much fun. Were we angry with passion because we <laughs> loved it so much? <laughs> you, have to you, know what, you know what? I said that Sean Costello was the most abject filmmaker. <laughs> we did Ron Howard, yeah. 
I think Ron Howard is is so much more. I think in the podcast, you know, a little spoiler, I think you even said, like, I don't remember the last time I've hated a movie this much. <laughs> so I recommend people check it out. $5 a month, become a Patreon subscriber. Not only do you get that Grinch episode, you get the whole back catalog, like Over more than 100 episodes. Yeah, yeah. lots. Make your, give yourself a Christmas present. Buy those episodes. And at the same time, you'll be giving us a Christmas present. Of money, yes. which is better than any physical goods. We don't believe in consumerism here at the Important Cinema Club. So, until next week, my name is the Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Before we get to the back matter, I'd just like to thank the new Patreon subscribers this month. So, I'd like to give a big hearty thank you to Jean Robin, Stephen Campbell, Charles F., Anton Person Flygare, Matthias, DD, Felix Dembinski, and Robbie Finstein. Thank you very much for supporting us through Patreon. We would not still be doing this if it wasn't for people like you. I'd also like to remind new listeners that if you haven't yet, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast app that you use. And please follow us on Facebook, Important Cinema Club. Just search it in the search bar. Same thing with Twitter, Important Cinema Club. And you can follow me on Twitter at DeCloux J, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, the letter J, and Will at Will Sloan ESQ. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the regular scheduled programming. Are you as excited as I am? Did you see that new trailer? Ghostbusters Afterlife. Finally, they're treating the movie about a couple of jerks who hunt ghosts seriously. Well, first of all, you know me. I never miss a Jason Reitman movie. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so have you seen... No, I haven't. (laughs) The last one I saw was Young Adult. Yeah, I saw Young Adult as well. Which was, I thought, pretty good. I thought pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But all the ones since then, no. You know, now that I'm going through my serious Sandman phase, I may have to check out Men, Women, and Children, which he's also (laughs) in. (laughs) So, yeah, the the Ghostbusters trailer, I was watching it, and I was thinking, okay, when are the laughs going to start? Yeah. Because it starts like Days of Heaven. (laughs) Yeah, it starts almost in a way like, like Will said, like a parody trailer, and you expect, like, Weird Al to show up or something you, you like that. You think there's going to be the record scratch, yeah. and then and then the jokes are going to start. But it becomes increasingly clear, oh, no, there are no jokes in this. This is a serious <laughs> Ghostbusters movie. Because everyone was pointing out that it's like Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. It's about kids yeah, d- on discovering bikes. Yeah. ghosts. It's an Amblin movie. It's, yeah, it's like It. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> Stranger Things, exactly. But, yeah, but, like, not even as funny as that. No. And then Paul Rudd shows up, and you think... Oh, he's going to bring the laughs? Yeah, Paul Rudd. Love Tommy when we King. went on American Summer. No, no, no laughs. <laughs> so, and it's baffling. Hey, but people are like, ah, finally, this is what I want from the Ghostbusters. Well, okay, the people saying that are just sexist. <laughs> yeah, they are. I don't even like the Paul Feig Ghostbusters, <coughs> but mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's way more what you would want from the series than this. I mean, when are the people <laughs> going to die and we can stop having to cater to their whims? Please! I just think the Ghostbusters, there was one movie from 1984 good. that people liked, and then this franchise has been running on fumes Whoa, whoa, that. whoa. The real Ghostbusters is a cartoon series, which I have no memory of other than I knew I watched it at some point. I remember being confused that it was called The Real Ghostbusters, because <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that there was another Ghostbusters cartoon. <laughs> oh, yeah, so wait, were you watching The Real Real Ghostbusters, the one with, like, the guy in the gorilla suit? I did not. The I, I never saw the one with the guy in the gorilla suit. <laughs> I, I would have loved it if I had seen it as a kid. Uh, but I was always, I watched the real go, Ghostbusters go, cartoons. Ghostbusters. And I wondered, wait, well, co- well of course they're the real Ghostbusters. Why <laughs> yeah. do Are there to, no other Ghostbusters? Why do they have to specify? It's one of those weird things that, like, the iconography of the first movie, the first movie, it's a good movie. It's really sloppy, too. It makes up a lot on um, Bill Murray's charm. Yeah, it's a movie that I've never had any particular affection for. Bill Murray's funny, whatever. Yeah, you know. but, like, 
the fact that like they keep going back to this well is just uh, you know what this movie's gonna make so much money well it's like it might not though <laughs> i think it will well but i i'm actually betting against it oh you're betting it yeah but you bet against all these movies well and often i'm proven right because okay it's like i think this is one of those series like terminator or predator where um it's it's running on the nostalgia for something 30 years old mm-hmm. and you know, every five years there's going to be a new one because somebody with the pie charts and the graph says, "Oh, hey, people still remember this brand. We I'll, can make money." Yeah, but I think the difference here is is that people are like, "Finally, it's being treated seriously." And who they is saying see, that? Who? Let me let me go on Twitter and show you a few, or even the movie websites who are like, mm, "Now I'm intrigued," and it's like, "What?" <laughs> the the mic is not picking up my look of astonishment <laughs> because I saw that trailer and I'm like, "How could anybody who likes Ghostbusters think that this is what they want?" It's to see? almost as if it's. It's like the son of the director is making like a very fawning um, version to his father's oh, yeah. picture, and we're finally we're finally getting the boys back. You oh, know, it's God. it's finally finally. Do you no- want Bill Murray to be wheeled out and like they CG his face to like talk and stuff like that? Oh, painful. Yeah. I mean, are there any other movies that you're excited that they need to reboot Batman Forever? Why can't they finally treat that with the respect that it deserves? Yeah, get Jim Carrey back. Put him in the leotard again. <laughs> You know, it's weird because, like, people talk about, like, these nostalgic franchises that are like, oh, finally, they're treating it with respect. There's almost nothing that when I was a kid that I'm like, yeah, bring back the serious version of Street Sharks, I guess. Yeah. Or Mighty Mouse or, uh, no, uh, Mighty Max. I feel like one of the things over the last decade is that everything I liked as a kid got rebooted in some way or another. Yeah. Like, Wh- reboot? <laughs> well, like, there was a sequel to Dumb and Dumber, for instance. Yeah. I and I'm like, I don't want this. There was uh, Monty Python reunited. Oh, there, God. There were so old. There was a whole new Star Wars trilogy all yeah. over the last decade, and all of these things. Which, if I were a kid, like, and you told me they're bringing these, you would have killed back, the person to get back. I would have loved it. Yes. And now, but what about like the forty and fifty year old people who are being catered to from this Ghostbuster stuff? I mean, I don't have any kids. I'm sure those parents are showing their kids Ghostbusters until they like it. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, don't you guys want ecto-coolers? Yeah, why aren't my children laughing at these comedians from the 80s? Yeah, Animal House. It's the funniest movie ever made. Hey, don't you want to hear some jokes about the Environmental Protection Agency? (laughs) And how they're bad guys and they're trying to keep this thriving small business down? Hey, watch as uh, Bill Murray sexually harasses somebody. Yeah, but he's charming, so it's not a problem (laughs) at all, right? This will never end as long as there's people that are in power that are like uh this makes money right. we don't want to take any chances so every five years like predator or terminator there'll be a new ghostbusters and it'll flop yeah and then you know like groundhog day <laughs> to quote another bill murray movie when's the groundhog day reboot coming back why well, it happened it was happy death day oh that, that's not a reboot i want bill murray back and i want them to treat it seriously <laughs> like the original film 